So can I tell you a secret before we jump into this sermon? Um, nobody really knows this about me, but I felt like this is an important, this is a safe space. I can share this. I hate sermon titles. Just throwing that out there. I hate them. And none of you really know this about me, but I will spend 10, 15 minutes debating a sermon title. And every time I'm like, this is the dumbest thing ever. And so this week, I'm so proud of this. I'm so so proud of this sermon title. I've been wanting this for about three years. I got to use it. <laughs> sermon titles are as meaningless as life. <laughs> I have wanted to use this one for years. It has nothing to do with my sermon. But that's the point. This morning, if you are with us, if you're new with us, or you haven't been with us in a while, our goal as a church has been to walk through the Bible together. And we have done a pretty impressive job. And right now, we're at a section called the Wisdom Literature of the Old Testament. It's five books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and the Book of Job. And these are books that we kind of often overlook as some of them are a little difficult. But for the last couple weeks, we've looked at the books of Psalms, and we've looked at the book of Proverbs. And next week, Pastor Chris, he's going to jump into Song of Songs. And if you have not read Song of Solomon, buckle up. <laughs> But that means today we get the weird one. That means today we get the weird book. We're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason I say this is a weird book is because if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever picked this up, you probably had one of two responses to it. One, you read it and you thought, this is the most depressing book I have ever read. Who in their right mind thought I should add this to the Bible? I'm not kidding. You read this thing and you're like, Seriously? And I'll show you why. We'll get there in just a minute. But the other response that you probably had as you read the book of Ecclesiastes is you realized, especially if you've been with us and we've been reading all the other books of Scripture, Ecclesiastes is not like any other book of the Bible. It's very other. And the reason for that is this. Ecclesiastes is not really a true storytelling book, and yet it sort of tells a story. It's not a pure poetry book, and yet, there's a lot of poetry in it. And the other thing about this book that's kind of frustrating is it has an argument that's just not very cohesive. Meaning, his argument, as he writes, the author's thoughts, they just kind of wander. And in fact, they double back on themselves. He re-explains things. He digs back in. And you're like, I just read this. What's going on? And then he takes this random tangent, and then he jumps back in. It's a little confusing. But the thing that stands out to most people, and this is where the depressing aspect of it comes, is as you read, the, the book just seems to have this hopeless attitude towards life. And it's a hopeless attitude that lends itself to just pure hedonism. What I mean by that is this. Look at the opening verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. They're right here on the screen for you. He says this. This is the words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem, in other words, hi, I'm so-and-so. Let me tell you how I feel about everything. Meaningless. Meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Hi, nice to meet you. Welcome to church. Glad you're here today. It's at this point in the service, I really want to extend a welcome to our guests today. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. This is, but seriously, he just comes out swinging. Meaningless, utterly Meaningless. And then, as I said, it lends itself to kind of a hedonistic tones where he gets to this point where he's like, well, everything is meaningless, so you might as well just live it up. Eat, drink, be merry, 
have at it. That's an odd book. That is not a typical book that we read. And this is why for thousands of years, Christians and Jews alike have all struggled with this book. It rubs against what we'll call religious sensibilities, right? You're like, that's not what it's supposed to say. It's supposed to say something different. And yet, it says it. It's just not very churchy. It's not very churchy. And here's the thing. While this book can be difficult to read, I already told you his argument is is difficult to track, I don't think his point is all that difficult to comprehend or understand. And here's why. As we really understand what he's trying to accomplish and we're able to just kind of sit in that, we realize, okay, this guy is not crazy. He's not hopeless. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. Because here's what he does. The purpose of this book, where it's different than other books, every other book of the Bible, right, it's either telling us stories about what God did or it's communication between God and his people. Not this book. What this book is all about is this is one man's attempt at trying to answer life's great existential questions. Why am I here? Why do I matter? What's the purpose of life? How do I live a meaningful, significant, satisfying life? And the way he goes about answering these questions is not by having a conversation with God. That's where it's very different than other books of the Bible. God is not really, God doesn't speak in this book. That doesn't mean God is absent from the book. No, and we'll see that in a minute. But this is more just an individual's personal human reflections on this. So this is what he does. These are kind of his premises or his foundational points that he works on. He recognizes that when it came to his birth, he had no control. He had no say in the matter. It just happened. Out he came. And he didn't have anything. And he recognizes he doesn't know what led up to that. He didn't have any control or say or influence or understanding of what led to that point. He was just born. And then he recognizes that when it comes to death, it's pretty much the same thing. He's not going to have any say in the matter. He has no control in the matter. He knows death is coming, but he doesn't know how and he doesn't know when. It's just going to happen. And so what he does, and this is the whole scope of the book, is he takes that middle section, that point between birth and death, and he says, how do I understand what's going on in that space? More than that, how do I find what is meaningful and significant and satisfying in that space. And what he does is he does exactly what every one of us would do. He goes and he takes all those things that he's ever been taught or all those things he's ever thought would bring about a meaningful life and he just dives in. He goes all in on those things. And then he takes a very real, very raw, very sobering critique of those things. And what he does in taking this critique is he takes us to very uncomfortable places. He pushes us to face certain realities that we're not comfortable admitting. Because as we'll see in this book, the things that this guy thought and were taught his entire life would bring meaning and satisfaction, they're the exact same things we've been taught would bring meaning and satisfaction to our lives. They're the same things we tell each other and our kids are going to bring satisfaction. But in truth, they won't. In truth, they won't. And it leaves this kind of haunting awkwardness 
in the midst of it where you realize all this time that you've spending energy, effort, money, emotions, caring about certain things, it's a waste of time. It's meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. But I told you I don't believe this book is hopeless. I don't believe that for a second. I think it's brilliant and I think it's incredibly encouraging. And why I believe it's incredibly encouraging is because while it points out that we may have been focusing on the wrong things, it helps to provide a helpful lens to say this is how you should be living instead. If you want a meaningful, satisfying, significant life, do this instead. And the reason I think this matters is because I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't want that. There's not a person in this room who has not thought these questions, has not struggled in this way, who has not said, I want that. I want my life to matter. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to do it in three ways. We're going to try and answer three basic questions today. The first question is this. What does he mean by the word meaningless? What does he mean? Here's the thing. This word comes up 38 times in a 12-chapter book. That's three and a half times a chapter. I did the math. Anybody else impressed? Three and a half times a chapter. That's a lot. That's a lot for a pretty small book, 38 times. So what does he mean by the word meaningless? And here's a surprise. The way we interpret this, the way we translate this, is actually based on a faulty translation out of the Latin version of the Bible. This isn't based on the Hebrew word. It's some faulty translation, and that's what we, we spend our time. And so we need to understand, what does he mean by meaningless? Second, after we define it, we need to ask the question, okay, how did he come to his conclusions? How did he come to conclude that everything is meaningless? What was his process? What did he do? You don't just take his word for it. You want to understand it. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at his process. And then third, we're going to say, okay, what can we learn from him? So what do we do? What do we gain from this? How do we live a meaningful, significant, and satisfying life? Three questions. What does, it mean to be, what does he mean by meaningless? Second, how did he go about his process? And third, what can we learn from him? Sound good? That's the plan. Everybody in for this? Okay. First, let's take the word. I said it comes up 38 times. That's a ton. That's a ton. And so here's the thing. While this word is often translated meaningless, and you'll be able to see in a second why this word can be translated meaningless, that's not its meaning. The literal definition of the word translated meaningless is actually smoke or vapor. The word is hevel in Hebrew, hevel, H-E-V-E-L. And this is really important because what he's getting at, so you can see where he gets this idea of meaninglessness, right? Like smoke is, it doesn't have much substance. That's where he's getting at in that. Some translations say vanity, but smoke, I think, is a much better translation. Because what you realize when he's using the word smoke is he's actually using smoke in a metaphoric sense. He's saying life is metaphorically like smoke. And he does it in two ways. First, life is like smoke in that life is fleeting. Just like when you go down the street and some guy's vaping and he lets out that big cloud, it's here one second and then it's gone. Right? It smells delicious, by the way. I love vaping over cigarettes. But the point is, I don't do it, but I love the smell of it. Um, but the, the cloud is there for a second, and then it's gone. And then the second way he uses smoke is smoke, just like life, is an enigma. It's a paradox. Smoke, while it looks solid, as soon as you go to reach out and grab it, what happens? 
it, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It slips right through your hand. And so what he's getting at is this. Life is unstable. Life is uncontrollable. Life is unpredictable, unwieldy. Just when you think you're about to grab it, it slips through your hands and it's here one second, it's gone the next. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes says, life is like chasing after the wind. Just when you think you're about to get it, it's gone. So he doesn't mean meaningless. And in fact, as we're going to see, he points out that there are a number of things that have meaning, that have significance. But what he's getting at is life is hevel. Life is like smoke. Okay, so how does he go about his process? That's question one. Question two, how does he go about this process? Well, there's a number of ways that he looks at this. But the first thing he does is he just does what we do. He takes everything he's ever thought or been taught is going to find significance, and he jumps into them. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you don't have them, they're going to be on the screen for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And this is how he starts. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. For I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during their few days of their lives. I mean, he's just setting up everything we talked about, right? He's recognizing he doesn't know what happens before death. He doesn't know what happens after death. It's just this few days that everybody is on earth. What does he do? And then, going back one second, sorry. He just says, let's test what is good. Let's try and figure this out together. So he does this. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. I had a harem, the delights of a man's heart. You could translate that however you want. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. In other words, look at this. He's literally saying, I lived the dream. He had everything he ever thought or had been taught would bring pleasure to him, and he jumped into it. This is the American dream, like literally the American dream. He didn't have just one house. He had multiple, and where were they? On vineyards, right? This is the expensive part of the land. He gave back to his community. I made gardens and parks. I planted trees in them. Anybody could eat from them. He gave back. What else does it say? I, I made reservoirs. I had incredible bu or building projects under my control. I made the first sprinkler system, is what he's getting at. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else. I had more silver and gold, treasures of kings and prophets. This guy's filthy rich. He says he had male and female slaves. Obviously, we don't endorse slavery in any way, shape, or form. But what he's getting at is he had people working for him. He was the boss. He didn't have to report to anybody. He, he was overseeing people. He was so rich, had so much power, he had a top-of-the-line entertainment system. He had male and female singers at his disposal. More than that, he had a harem. All the beautiful women of the kingdom were his. He could do whatever he wanted. 
more than that. He had prestige. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and he had wisdom. This guy is living the dream. Is there anything on this list that you're like, well, he's missing this? Sort of. He's got family and other things. All of those are going to come up. But this is it. He basically says, I pursued everything. In fact, look at this. The next one, it kind of summarizes it. This is verse 10. I denied myself nothing. My, I desired myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Everything I ever wanted, I had it. And you know what? This is where it says. Next verse. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, you know what it was? Hevel. Everything was hevel. It was smoke. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Okay, but how did he come to this conclusion? That's the question, right? Okay, so he, he pursued all these different things, and in the end, he discovered they were hevel. Well, how did he come to this conclusion? Well, as I said, if you read through the book, he, he tackles a whole bunch of other issues. He starts with pleasures and these physical things, and then he digs deeper into wisdom. He digs into family. He digs into power. He digs into advancement. He digs into wealth. And all of those, he comes up with his various reasons for why they are meaningless or why they are hevel. But the point is this. The two that he comes back to more than anything else, these are very sobering, raw, real expectations. And that is this. First, in the end, it doesn't matter how good you are, how wise you are, how dumb you are, how rich you are, how poor you are. Doesn't matter your color. Doesn't matter your race. Doesn't matter your gender. Doesn't matter. Guess what? You're going to die. You're all going to die. Every single one of us are going to face death. And guess what? You can do nothing about it. All of us are going to face death. Okay, well, that's a fun one. Again, welcome to church. So glad you're here. <laughs> it gets even more raw. Because while he recognizes that at some point everyone's going to die, he also recognizes at some point you're going to be forgotten as well. And he pushes, he pushes this. So you pursued, you got great grades. Good for you. You got straight A's. Good. That's great. You went to a great college. That's, that's even better. Fantastic. Good for you. You married someone so crazy out of your league, everybody is like, man, how did that work out? Good for you. Good for you. You were a fantastic parent. You were a great parent. You set a great example for your children. Good for you. You, you had a great job, and it was a job you enjoyed, but it was also a job that was meaningful in the sense of it blessed humanity. It revolutionized humanity. You created something incredible. Good for you. Guess what? You're going to die. And a hundred years later, no one's even going to remember you. And his point in the midst of this is to prove it. How often do you reflect on your own ancestors? How often do you reflect? Maybe you reflect on your parents, and I recognize that if they've gone home to be with the Lord. But your grandparents? Your great-grandparents? How far back do you go? 200 years? Can you remember anybody in your family line? Sure, there's the random historical figures that stand out. But what about the billions of others? Odds are you're going to be forgotten. Odds are when you die, 
no one's going to remember you. And so those things that you've been stressing about, that bigger house, that argument you had with your spouse, that fight you had at work over this thing that you were determined had to happen the way that you wanted it to happen, I'm preaching to myself here, all these things, nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to care about at all. When you die, time keeps ticking. Tick, tick, tick. When you die, the waves of the ocean will keep crashing and crashing. When you die, the sun will continue to rise and continue to set. And there's nothing you can do about it. Life is hevel. This is the part of the book where most people get to and they shut it and walk away and they get to the point where they're like, who in their right mind thought this was a good idea to add to the Bible? <laughs> this is heavy. It's hard. I want to be clear on something. I'm not saying that getting straight A's is a bad thing. I'm not saying that marrying above your status is a bad thing. I'm not saying that having a nice family, having a nice car, having a nice house, having nice things is bad. At all. And in fact, as you read through his letter, he makes it very clear that there are certain things that are worth pursuing and certain things that are not. And some of those things are, it's good to have wisdom. It's good to have knowledge. It's good to have money. It's good to pursue these things. There's nothing wrong with that. But his point is, if you believe that in pursuing those things that you're going to find satisfaction and fulfillment, you're wrong. You're wrong. It'll never happen. So why do it? These things that you spend hours stressing about, frustrated about, you pour your time, your energy, your efforts, your money, all of this, you sacrifice various things to achieve. To what end? It's hevel. It's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. You're never going to attain it. But I told you, this is where I believe this book is quite brilliant. Because while it makes this stark reality very much in your face and you kind of are forced to deal with this and be like, okay, this is kind of uncomfortable, these truths that it takes me to, you could get to the point where you look at life as meaningless and frustrating and hevel and just say, well, I'm done. Life is dumb. And you settle for some mediocre definition of life and you just hope that when you die, there's something more to come. And you just have decided, I'm going to put my head down and power through. That's one way, sure. Or you can take his advice. And what his advice is, and you see this about six times in the book, is instead of just running from the idea that life is hevel, embrace life as hevel. Embrace the fact that you can never control life. Embrace the fact that you, have, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put in, you're going to die in the end and nobody's going to forget you. So why stress about those things? Embrace Hevel. Embrace it. And here's the beauty of this thing, okay? Here's the beauty of it. When you learn to release control, when we acknowledge, in fact, that we have no control, I like the way I phrase this. That's why I'm reading it. When we acknowledge that we have no control over life, we are free to simply enjoy life as we experience it rather than how we expect it. When we admit we have no control, we are free to enjoy life as we experience it rather than as we expect it. 
And so those things that come in our life, when he says, eat, drink, and be merry, what he's getting at is enjoy the things that you have right before you today. Stop stressing about what else you can have. Stop stressing about the bigger house. Stop stressing about the next promotion. Stop stressing about having the family. Stop stressing about X, Y, Z, whatever your thing is, and recognize what God has placed in front of you today. And enjoy it. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy time with your family. Enjoy your job. And if you don't enjoy it, really think about why you're doing it. Enjoy good food. In fact, he says, have a bottle of wine. Enjoy good wine. Have fun. Embrace the good things that are here. And here's why. This isn't pure hedonism. Because as you read it, every single one of those times the author says to do these things, he follows it up immediately with, for this is a gift of God. We're not there yet. For this is a gift of God. Or he says, this is from the hand of God to you. Life is hevel. It's uncontrollable. You can't have anything to do with it. But God has continued to richly bless you with your friends. Richly bless you with various things that pop up in your life and are just there in front of you. Stop stressing about what's next. Embrace today. In other words, let God be God and enjoy the things that he has given you. And if you think, okay, well, that's a, that's a bit of a stretch. Where'd you get this God be God language? I could see the other stuff, but where's this? At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the very end, the last two verses, there's another author that comes and speaks, a guy who took all the things that the teacher has said, and he gives his own conclusion on the matter. He says this, now all has been heard. You've heard how life is meaningless. You heard how life is a chasing after the wind, how just when you think you're about to grab it, it slips out, or just when you think, oh, it's gone. It's Hevel. You've heard it all. Here's the conclusion. Here's what I got to say. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, let God be God and live within the boundaries that God has set for you. Stop trying to go beyond yourself. Stop trying to continue to manipulate and change and fix everything around you. Just live within the boundaries of what it is that God has given you and accept those good things, those blessings in life as gifts directly from him for you. Accept them. And then you go, okay, well, what about all the other junk in the world? I got to fix everything. That's the last line. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. You don't have to right the wrongs of the world. You don't have to deal with the injustices. And in fact, while you can continue to pursue good things, and you should pursue good things, you're never going to be able to change everything. Let God be God and instead embrace the things that he has offered you. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Every single one of us longs for a meaningful life, a significant, a satisfying life, every one of us. And yet we've been continually pursuing, investing time, energy, and effort in all these things that are meaningless when we've been ignoring the things that were right before us every single day. That's powerful, powerful. I had a conversation with a man this week who told me that he, he was given a terminal diagnosis a couple years ago, and he's just been banking the credits basically ever since. 
I loved this conversation. It was on, I think it was on Tuesday, and I had just finished writing this sermon. And I was sitting there talking to him, and he, he told me this story. And as he was telling me this story, he said, you know, I, I've just begun to just drop the small stuff. I've begun to just let it go. I used to get stressed about this and that and the other thing, and now it doesn't matter. And so he enjoys his time with his family, enjoys his time with his wife, enjoys the sunsets, enjoys every day he has. That's a powerful statement. I thought that was true wisdom, true wisdom. Here's the thing. I don't know if you've caught this as we've gone through Scripture this whole year together. I told you we've been working through it, and it's very interesting when you take Scripture at a very macro level, like a big picture level, what you see. And what we continue to see over and over is this same theme continues to pop itself up. That you and I, the rest of humanity, we are obsessed with playing God. We are obsessed with wanting to control, wanting to determine our destinies, wanting to determine what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. This is the same temptation that Adam and Eve felt all the way back in the garden. And as we've watched Israel continue to progress, it's the same thing that leads to every single sin of mankind. I don't want to go God's way. I want to go my way. Every time, I want to be God. Remember in the garden, what did the serpent say to him? God knows that if you eat of it, you will be like God. We are obsessed with playing God. And it gets us nowhere. That's what the teacher makes very clear in Ecclesiastes. Why are we continuing to do this? And so he has this brilliant advice. Let God be God. Embrace the simple things. So here's your homework for the week. I cannot tell you. This would be, if I, a teacher ever gave me this homework assignment, I'd be stoked. Okay? Here's your homework assignment this week. This week, put down your phones and have a conversation with the person sitting next to you. Recognize that you're in the moment with them. Recognize that they've been a blessing to you. Here's another one. Here's a fun one. If you're married, flirt with your spouse. Go flirt. If you're not married, go find somebody to flirt with. <laughs> go play with your kids. Get down on the carpet and wrestle with them. Have fun with them. Don't worry about your phone. Go play with your kids. If you have grandkids, go play with your grandkids. If your kids are old and for some reason they don't like to wrestle around on the floor anymore, take them out to lunch and just sit and be with them. Don't try and control them. Don't try to fix them. Don't try and tell them everything wrong in their lives. Just let them know how much you enjoy being in their presence and enjoy them. Enjoy them more than that. You know what? Take his advice. Go have a good meal. Sit down and have a nice bottle of wine. If you don't like wine, have some beer. If you don't like beer, have a cocktail. If you don't like alcohol in general, have one of those pummel moose LaCroix things. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Everybody's got one of those now. Go for it. Enjoy something delicious. Go to the beach this week and sit and take in a sunset. And just sit there with the persons you love and just sit there and be like, look at another beautiful day that God has given me. I really struggled with this sermon. Um, not because, I, I, I told you, I wrote it on Tuesday. For whatever reason, I just, I was obsessing with perfecting it yesterday. Obsessing with it. I was here for hours 
And it was done. I knew the passage. I knew the book. I knew I could articulate it. I was just so focused on control. And it's so ironic. So at some point, like six or seven o'clock, so ironic in light of the message. At six or seven o'clock, I got up and I just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go walk in the neighborhood. Um, and so I, I get over to that park that's in the neighborhood and I just start walking around and then I get to this part in the message, a part that I wrote like a week before where it's stop and enjoy the sunset and recognize the good gifts that God has gotten you. And I'm just sitting there and I was like, oh. <laughs> Somebody probably would have got it like by page two of the sermon, not me. I made it all the way to the end. And it was this profound moment of just stopping and realizing God is God and he is good. And so I just stopped and I sat there and here's the other thing is as I, as I did, I realized that I was sitting in my office or, or you know, at work when my wife was loved on so well by our community yesterday at that baby shower. She was so overwhelmed with it, and all I wanted to do was go home and hear about it. But I was so stupid trying to control things that I realized, what am I doing? And so I just folded the papers up, put it in my back pocket, got in my car, and went home. Practically speaking, that's what it looks like to let God be God and just trust the good things or enjoy the good, simple things that he's given you today. It's brilliant advice. Let me pray. Father, we declare that you are good. That you are a God who continues to love us even when we try and take your job. Father, I pray that we are able to have eyes to see the good things in our lives, eyes to see the blessings that you have poured out in front of us, and that we would be mindful to sit in those spaces as good gifts from you, that we wouldn't run from the, the meaninglessness of life, but that we would just embrace the fact that you are God and that we are not. We ask all this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. <laughs>